Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. This week, we have an extended excerpt from the audiobook edition of A Flicker in the Dark, a compelling, eerie thriller from debut author Stacey Willingham. Best-selling author Karen Slaughter calls it a smart, edge-of-your-seat story with plot twists you'll never see coming. If you enjoy listening to Case Closed, you won't want to miss an excerpt from A Flicker in the Dark, read by Carissa Vacker. There are so many subtle ways we women subconsciously protect ourselves throughout the day. Protect ourselves from shadows, from unseen predators from cautionary tales and urban legends. So subtle, in fact, that we hardly even realize we're doing them. Leave work before dark. Clutch our purses to our chest with one hand, hold our keys between our fingers in the other, like a weapon, as we shuffle toward our car, strategically parked beneath a streetlight in case we weren't able to leave work before dark. Approach our car, glance in the back seat before unlocking the front. Grip our phone tight, Point your finger just to swipe away from 911. Step inside, lock it again. Do not idle, drive away quickly. I turn out of the parking lot adjacent to my office building and away from town. I stop at a red light and glance in my rearview mirror, habit, I suppose, wincing at the reflection. I look rough. It's muggy outside, so muggy that my skin is slick with grease. My usually limp brown hair has a bit of curl at the tips a frizziness that only the Louisiana summer can achieve. Louisiana summer. Such a loaded phrase. I grew up here. Well, not here, not in Baton Rouge. In Louisiana, though, a tiny little town called Bro Bridge, the crawfish capital of the world. It's a distinction we're proud of for some reason. The same way Cocker City, Kansas must be proud of their 5,000-pound ball of twine, it brings superficial meaning to an otherwise meaningless place. Bro Bridge also has a population of less than 10,000, which means that everybody knows everybody. And more specifically, everybody knows me. When I was young, I used to live for the summer. The swampy memories are so abundant. Spotting gators in Lake Martin, screaming when I caught a glimpse of their beady eyes lurking beneath a carpet of algae, my brother laughing as we sprinted in the opposite direction, screaming, see you later, alligator, making wigs out of Spanish moss hanging in our multi-acre backyard, then picking chiggers out of my hair in the days that followed, dabbing clear nail polish on the itchy red welts, twisting the tail off a freshly boiled crawfish and sucking the head dry. But memories of summer also bring memories of fear. I was 12 when the girls started to go missing. Girls not much older than me. It was July of 1999, and it was shaping up to be just another hot, humid Louisiana summer. Until one day, it wasn't. I remember walking into the kitchen one morning, early, rubbing the sleep from my eyes, dragging my mint green blanket across the linoleum floor. I had slept with that blanket ever since I was a baby loved the edges raw. I remember twisting the fabric between my fingers, a nervous tick, when I saw my parents huddled in front of the TV, worried, whispering. 
what's going on? They turned around, their eyes wide at the sight of me, turning it off before I could see the screen. Before they thought I could see the screen. Oh, honey, my father said, walking toward me, holding me tighter than normal. It's nothing, sweetheart. But it wasn't nothing. Even then, I knew it wasn't nothing. The way my father was holding me, the way my mother's lip quivered as she turned toward the window, the same way Lacey's lip quivered this afternoon as she forced herself to process the realization she had known all along. The realization she had been trying to push out, trying to pretend wasn't true. My eyes had caught a glimpse of that bright red headline stamped across the bottom of the screen. It had already been seared into my psyche, a collection of words that would forever alter life as I knew it. Local bro bridge girl goes missing. At 12 years old, girl goes missing doesn't have the same sinister implications as it does when you're older. Your mind doesn't automatically flicker to all those horrible places, kidnapping, rape, murder. I remember thinking, missing where? I thought maybe she had gotten lost. My family's home was situated on more than 10 acres of land. I had gotten lost plenty of times catching toads in the swamp or exploring uncharted patches of woods, scratching my name in the bark of an unmarked tree or constructing forts out of moss-soaked sticks. I had even gotten stuck in a small cave once, the home of some kind of animal, its puckered entrance somehow both frightening and enticing at the exact same time. I remember my brother tying a piece of old rope to my ankle as I lay flat on my belly, wriggling myself into the cold, dark void, holding a flashlight keychain tight between my lips, letting the darkness swallow me whole as I crawled deeper and deeper, and finally, the sheer terror that ensued once I realized that I couldn't pull myself back out. So when I saw clips of the search party scouring through overgrown foliage and wading through bogs, I couldn't help but wonder what would happen if I ever went missing myself, if people would come for me the same way they were coming for her. She'll turn up, I thought, and when she does, I bet she'll feel silly for causing such a fuss. But she didn't turn up. And three weeks later, another girl went missing. Four weeks after that, another. By the end of the summer, six girls had disappeared. One day they were there, and the next, gone. Vanished without a trace. Now, six missing girls will always be six too many, but in a town like Bro Bridge, a town so tiny that there's a noticeable gap in a classroom when one child drops out, or a quietness to a neighborhood when a single family moves away, six girls was a weight almost too heavy to bear. Their goneness was impossible to ignore. It was an evil that had settled over the sky the way an impending storm can make your bones throb. You could feel it taste it, see it in the eyes of every person you met. An inherent distrust had captivated a town that was once so trusting. A suspicion had taken hold that was impossible to shake. One single, unspoken question lingered among us all. Who's next? Curfews were put into place. Stores and restaurants closed at dusk. I, like every other girl in town, was forbidden to be outside after dark. 
Even in the daytime, I felt the evil lurking just behind every corner. The anticipation that it would be me, that I would be next, was always there, always present, always suffocating. You'll be fine, Chloe. You don't have anything to worry about. I remember my brother hoisting on his backpack one morning before summer camp. I was crying, again, too afraid to leave the house. She does have something to worry about, Cooper. This is serious. She's too young, he said. She's only 12. He likes teenagers, remember? Cooper, please. My mother crouched down to the floor, positioned herself at eye level, tucked a strand of hair behind my ear. This is serious, honey, but just be careful. Be vigilant. Don't get into a car with strangers, Cooper said, sighing. Don't walk down dark alleys alone. It's all pretty obvious, Chloe. Just don't be stupid. Those girls weren't stupid, my mother snapped, her voice quiet but sharp. They were unlucky, in the wrong place at the wrong time. I turn into the CVS parking lot now and pull through the pharmacy drive-thru. There's a man standing behind the sliding glass window, busying himself with stapling various bottles into paper bags. He slides the window open and doesn't bother to look up. Name? Daniel Briggs. He glances at me, clearly not a Daniel. He taps a few keys on the computer before him and speaks again. Date of birth? May 2nd, 1982. He turns around, shuffles through the bee basket. I watch him grab a paper bag and walk toward me again, my hands gripped tightly on the wheel to stop them from fidgeting. He aims his scanner at the barcode and I hear a beep. Do you have any questions about the prescription? Nope, I say smiling. All good. He pushes the bag through his window and into mine. I snatch it, push it deep into my purse and roll the window up again, pulling away without so much as a goodbye. I drive for a few more minutes, my purse on the passenger seat radiating from the mere presence of the pills inside. It used to baffle me how easy it was to pick up prescriptions for other people. As long as you know the birthday that matches the name on file, most pharmacists never even ask for a driver's license. And if they do, simple explanations usually work. Oh, shoot, it's in my other purse. I'm actually his fiance. Do you need me to provide the address on file? I turn into my Garden District neighborhood and start the journey down a mile-long stretch of road that always leaves me disoriented. The way I imagine scuba divers feel when they find themselves completely enveloped in darkness. A darkness so dark even their own hand placed inches from their face would get lost. All sense of direction, gone. All sense of control, gone. Without any houses to illuminate the roadway or floodlights to reveal the twisting arms of the trees that line the street, when the sun goes down, this road gives the illusion of driving straight into a pool of ink, disappearing into a vast nothingness, falling endlessly into a bottomless hole. I hold my breath, push my foot down on the gas just a little bit harder. Finally, I can sense my turn approaching. I flick on my blinker, even though there's nobody behind me, just more black, and veer right into our cul-de-sac, releasing my breath when I pass the first streetlight revealing the road toward home. Home. That, too, is a loaded phrase. A home isn't just a house, a collection of bricks and boards held together by concrete and nails. It's more emotional than that. A home is safety, security, the place you go back to when the curfew clock strikes nine. 
But what if your home isn't safe, isn't secure? What if the outstretched arms you collapse into on your porch steps are the same arms you should be running from? The same arms that grabbed those girls, squeezed their necks, and buried their bodies before washing their own hands clean? What if your home is where it all started? The epicenter of the earthquake that shook your town to the core. The eye of the hurricane that ripped apart families, lives, you, everything you had ever known. What then? As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Chapter 4 My car idles in the driveway as I dig into my purse and fish out the pharmacy bag. I rip it open and pull the orange bottle from inside, twisting the cap and dumping a pill into my palm before crumpling the bag in a ball and shoving it and the bottle into my glove compartment. I look at the Xanax in my hand, inspecting the little white tablet. I think back to that phone call in my office, Aaron Jansen. 20 years. My chest constricts at the memory, and I pop the pill into my mouth before I can think twice, swallowing it dry. I exhale, close my eyes. Already, I feel the grip in my chest loosening, my airways opening wide. A calmness settles over me, the same sense of calm that follows every time my tongue touches a pill. I don't really know how to describe it, this feeling other than pure and simple relief. The same relief you would feel after flinging open your closet door to find nothing but clothes hiding inside. The slowing of the heart rate. The euphoric sense of giddiness that creeps into the brain when you realize that you're safe. That nothing's going to lunge at you from the shadows. I open my eyes. There's a hint of spice in the air as I step out of my car and slam the door, clicking the lock button twice on my key fob. I turn my nose toward the sky and sniff, trying to place the scent. Seafood, maybe. Something fishy. Maybe the neighbors are having a barbecue, and for a second, I'm offended that I'm not invited. I start the long walk up the cobblestones toward my front door, the darkness of the house looming before me. I make it halfway up the walkway before I stop and stare. Back when I bought this house, years ago, it was just that, a house. A shell of a thing, ready to have life blown into it like a saggy balloon. It was a house prepared to become a home, all eager and excited like a kid on the first day of school. But I had no idea how to make a home. The only home I had ever known could hardly be called a home at all. Not anymore, at least. Not in hindsight. I remember walking through the front door for the first time, keys in hand, my heels on the hard wood echoing through the vast emptiness, the bare white walls littered with nail marks from where pictures once hung, 
proof that it was possible, that memories could be formed here, a life could be made. I opened up my little toolkit, a tiny red craftsman that Cooper had bought, walking me around Home Depot as I held the lips open while he dropped wrenches and hammers and pliers inside, like he was filling up a bag of sweet and sour gummies at the local candy store. I didn't have anything to hang, no pictures, no decorations. So I hammered a single nail into the wall and hung the metal ring that held my house key. A single key and nothing more. It felt like progress. Now I look at all the things that I've done to it since to make it appear like I have my shit together from the outside. The superficial equivalent of slathering makeup over a marbling bruise or fastening a rosary on top of a scarred wrist. Why I care so much about the acceptance of my neighbors as they slink past my yard, leashes in hand, I don't really know. There's the swinging bench bolted to the porch ceiling, the always-present layer of buttery yellow pollen making it impossible to pretend that anybody ever actually sits there. The landscaping I had eagerly purchased and planted and then subsequently ignored to death. The skinny brown tendrils of my twin hanging ferns resembling the regurgitated bones of a small animal I once found while dissecting an owl in eighth grade biology. The scratchy brown welcome mat that says, Welcome. The bronze mailbox shaped like an oversized envelope bolted to the siding, maddeningly impractical, the slit too tiny to fit an entire hand, let alone more than a couple of postcards mailed to me by former classmates turned realtors after the promise of their degrees turned out to be not so promising. I start walking again, deciding in this moment that I'm going to throw away the stupid envelope and just use a regular mailbox like everybody else. It is also in this moment when I realize that my house looks dead. It's the only one on the block without lights illuminating the windows, the flicker of a television behind closed blinds, the only one without any evidence of life inside. I walk closer, the Xanax cloaking my mind into a forced calm, but still something is nagging at me. Something is wrong. Something is different. I look around my yard, small but well-kept, a mown lawn and shrubs push against a raw wood fence, an oak tree's mangled limbs casting shadows against a garage I've never once pulled my car into. I glance up at the house, now mere feet before me. I think I catch a glimpse of movement behind a curtain from inside, but I shake my head, force myself to keep walking. Don't be ridiculous, Chloe, be real. My key is in the front door, already twisting, when I realize what's wrong, what's different. The porch light is off. The porch light I always, always leave on, even when I'm sleeping, ignoring the beam of light it casts straight across my pillow through the gap in the blinds, is turned off. I never turn the porch light off. I don't think I've ever even touched the switch. That's why the house looks so lifeless, I realize. I've never seen it so dark before, so completely devoid of light. Even with the street lamps, it is dark out here. Someone could come up behind me and I'd never even- Surprise! I let out a scream and plunge my arm into my purse, searching for my pepper spray. The lights from inside flick on and I'm staring at a crowd of people in my living room. Thirty, maybe forty, all staring back, smiling. My heart is slamming inside my chest now. I can barely speak. Oh, my, I stutter, look around, 
I'm searching for a reason and explanation, but I can't find one. Oh my god! I'm instantly aware of my hand in my purse, clutching the pepper spray with a strength that startles me. A wave of relief washes over me as I release it, wiping the sweat on my palm against the interior fabric. What? What is this? What does it look like? A voice erupts to my left. I turn to the side and watch the crowd part as a man steps into the opening. It's a party. It's Daniel, dressed in dark wash jeans and a snug blue blazer. He's beaming at me, his teeth a blinding white against his tanned skin, his sandy hair pushed to the side. I feel my heart start to slow again. My hand moves from my chest to my cheek, and I can feel it growing hot. I crack an embarrassed smile as he pushes a glass of wine toward me. I take it with my free hand. A party for us, he says, squeezing me tight. I can smell his body wash, his spiced deodorant. An engagement party. Daniel, what, what are you doing here? Well, I live here. A wave of laughter erupts in the crowd, and Daniel squeezes my shoulder, smiling. You're supposed to be out of town, I say. I thought you weren't getting back until tomorrow. Yeah, about that. I lied, he says, eliciting more laughs. Are you surprised? I scan the sea of people fidgeting in their places. They're still looking at me, expectant. I wonder how loudly I screamed. To keep listening, buy A Flicker in the Dark by Stacey Willingham wherever audiobooks are sold. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts.